0: Good morning. Welcome to St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, a special presentation. A special welcome to our listeners on KFUO 858M and KFUO.org listening worldwide. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this special presentation in honor of the 500th anniversary of the Lutheran Reformation. With that, let's begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, Grant to your church your Holy Spirit and the wisdom that comes down from above, that your word may not be bound, but have free course and be preached to the joy and edifying of Christ's holy people, that in steadfast faith we may serve you, and in the confession of your name abide unto the end. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We now want to turn to Hymn 658, Hymn 658, Preserve Your Word, O Savior, and we will sing verses 1 and 4 of Hymn 658. It's my pleasure to introduce one of our own here at St. Paul's who will provide our presentation this morning. Rev. Paul McCain has served in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod since 1988 as an instructor at our seminary in Fort Wayne, a pastor in Iowa, assistant to two synodical presidents, and as the interim director of Concordia Historical Institute, and for the past 17 years at Concordia Publishing House. For five years as interim president, and for the past 12 years as publisher and executive director of the editorial department. He is the general editor of Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord. He is a member of St. Paul's Congregation with his wife, Lynn, and they have been blessed with three grown children. His presentation to us today is titled, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, The Lasting in Legacy of the Lutheran Reformation. Please join me in welcoming Reverend Paul McCain.
1: Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And a happy Reformation Day to you all. Wow, a sea of red. Ties and dresses and sweaters It's wonderful. I I guess I didn't get that memo. It is a thrill to be here with you today, and I was thinking as I was driving here, how many of you have ever celebrated the 500th anniversary of anything? Have you ever? I haven't. I can't remember it. How do you say it? The quincentennial of the Reformation? 500 years. 500 years. This morning we're going to take a little walk together. And as we do, I'm going to point out some highlights. I'd like to be your tour guide for the past 500 years. Now, they tell me I only have 50 minutes, but I'm probably going to be speaking until next Wednesday. So um. now I'm going to do my best this morning to educate, to inspire you, and to motivate you. The word of the Lord endures forever, the lasting legacy of the Lutheran Reformation. October 31st, 1517, was a day probably much like today in Wittenberg, Germany. The weather in St. Louis and Wittenberg are somewhat comparable this time of year, so I'm just going to go out on a limb and say it was a beautiful day like today. And who are you to prove me wrong? But weather was the last thing on the mind of the Augustinian monk who walked out of his cloister, his home, on the east side of Wittenberg, headed out the front gate and turned to his left and started walking toward the Castle Church complex, which was at the end of Wittenberg. I can't say far end of Wittenberg, because you know how long it took him to walk that route? 15, 20 minutes, probably a little longer, because I'm sure along the way he was stopped by people who knew him and people whom he knew. But 15 minutes, 2,000 steps. The reason I know this is because years ago I was in Wittenberg for the very first time attending a conference on the Doctrine of Justification at about this time of the year. What a thrill that was. And I just thought to myself, you know, I'm going to walk to his house, which is still there. It's now a beautiful Luther museum. And I'm going to see how long it takes me to leave the front door and walk to the castle church. And my friend... Pastor Robert Zagor of Michigan came with me. I counted minutes, he counted steps. Fifteen minutes, two thousand steps. So on that day, on October 31st, this Augustinian monk headed out the door, turned to his left and started to walk down the street. He soon passed the University of Wittenberg, which was the crown jewel in the holdings of One of the most, if not the most powerful man in Germany, other than the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, a man we know today as Frederick the Wise. And this university, far from being, as some have referred to it, a backwater little no-account university, was actually a star star in the constellation of the new scholarship going on in Germany at the time that focused not on the old dusty methods of theology from the Middle Ages, but rather on returning to the sources, the scriptures, the early church fathers. And if you wanted to study with the top up-and-coming scholars of this time, you would go to the University of Wittenberg and study under people like Martin Luther and soon others such as Philip Melanchthon. Frederick the Wise poured a lot of money into this university to make it a success. So the street Luther was walking on was named College Street, Collegianstrasse. And as he walked, he was greeted, probably first of all, by students who knew Dr. Martin Luther, Professor Luther, from the classroom, and they loved him. He was a dynamic, fiery speaker. He wasn't too tall, probably about 5'7", 5'8" but he was known for piercing dark eyes and a very clear tenor voice and for this fiery way of speaking and presenting what he found, what he discovered, what he was renewed in as he studied the scriptures. Dr. Luther was a doctor of Bible. He had received that degree just a few years earlier, about five years earlier, taking vows in the castle church sponsored by Frederick the Wise and he had been pledged to teach theology, letting the chips fall where they may. He was duty-bound as a doctor of the church to teach the truth as he studied it. And that was his formal commission from the church of his day, which today we know as the Roman Catholic Church. He always clung to this call. He spent his entire career in the city of Wittenberg. For many, many, many years, he could hardly travel anywhere because he was under the imperial ban. We'll talk about that in a moment. So he spent his whole life in Wittenberg teaching there. And as he walked down that street that day, receiving the greetings from students, he also received the greetings of many lay people who attended the parish church. As he walked a little further, he got to the point where you could see clearly the towers, the spires of St. Mary Church, the parish church in Wittenberg. And that's where Luther preached literally thousands and thousands of sermons. In addition to all his other many duties, he was a member of the pastoral staff. Later, when the Reformation really took off, his pastor, John Bugenhagen, would travel to parts of Europe to lead the Reformation in various places and various cities, and Luther would fill in. So he preached thousands of sermons in that parish church, and he knew many of the members because... His specific duty, in addition to helping to preach, was to hear confessions. And on that bright, sunshiny day in Wittenberg, he recognized some of the people who greeted him as Father Luther. He recognized these people from the confessional. He recognized them because they had come to him during the past six months or so waving around a piece of paper, a document, that they had managed to purchase just across the border of his territory in Saxony in the little town of Uteborg, Germany. Frederick the Wise would not allow the indulgence peddlers to sell in his territory, but if people walked, it literally took them a whole day I calculated on on, uh, Google Maps. If you walked, it would take you about eight hours to walk from Wittenberg to Uteborg. In a car, twenty minutes. They would walk a whole day to attend a service in a church and listen to an indulgence seller sell them an indulgence. Now, what was this all about? We all kind of, you know, if we don't know much about the Reformation, and it's okay if you don't, it's a very uh, perplexing movement, frankly. It's not as easy as anybody would lead you to believe. But if we all know something about the Reformation, we know about theses on a church door, something about indulgences. In fact, uh, several of the theses are printed in our church bulletin this morning. What was this all about? This is an amazing story. First of all, the story of the most successful fundraising campaign in the history of the church. And I don't recommend that the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Foundation start a campaign like this. Though, if you believed what people back then believed, And if our church taught what the church used to teach, you would be scrambling to buy an indulgence. What was an indulgence? It was a document that was written in Latin that most of you would not be able to read. If you were the typical medieval congregation, most of you would be illiterate probably incapable of reading anything. A good number of you, however, would be literate. You would be the middle class in Wittenberg. You could read German. Maybe some of you have been schooled in Latin. But even if you could read this document, the indulgence document was almost nonsensical upon translation. We have a copy of it in our Book of Concord, this uh, reader's edition. But this paper represented a way for you to make it possible... For a loved one to spend less time in purgatory. And my wife Lynn and I were talking this morning. We have to understand, people sincerely believed what the church sincerely believed and taught. It would be wrong of us to, to ascribe cynicism to everybody in the Roman Catholic Church, either lay or clergy, but they believed this, they believed that baptism Washed away the guilt of your original sin, but any sin you commit in your life, now think of that, any sin you commit in your life since your baptism would need to be verbally confessed to a priest who would pronounce absolution, who would give you an act of penance to do, but as a result of the lingering guilt that you had accumulated during your life from all these venial sins, you would have to go to purgatory and in purgatory suffer for who knows how many years in a fiery purgation of guilt. You say, what's the difference between purgatory and hell? You could get out of purgatory eventually. But hell was forever. But you would believe this. And if the church came along and said by obtaining an indulgence, by making a financial contribution, you would have time off from purgatory for your loved ones and families, wouldn't you buy one? I won't ask for a show of hands, but every hand would go up if I did. If you believed there was a purgatory, if you believed your loved ones were there suffering the fiery purgation that their sins and their lives earned for them, you would want them out of there. Why was this a great fundraising scheme? There was a powerful Roman Catholic archbishop in the city of Mainz who had obtained his office at a very young age. Only about 24 years old, he was already a powerful churchman, but he wanted more. He wanted another office. And to get that office, he had to be granted an exception from the Pope himself to the rule that you can only hold one church office. Guess how the exception was granted? With a financial contribution to the church in Rome. You see, the Pope at the time, Leo X, was constructing a magnificent basilica. The church you know as St. Peter's in Rome. The church that is there today. This huge, it's the world's largest church. The world's largest church still to this day. That church was built in large part from funds obtained from the sale of indulgence that sparked the Reformation. So Luther was walking along that day. And in his hand was a document he had prepared. Because he was sick and tired of hearing confessions from people who thought... That they were being effectively let out of jail free with this indulgence. And yes, the lines were blurred. The formal teaching was not that the indulgence gave you personally forgiveness of your sins. However, I could sell you an indulgence and leave you with that impression when I said things like, it will remove the guilt of your sin in purgatory. So in the common mind, this indulgence was a powerful document. And that's why in his theses, Dr. Luther rejected this notion that you could basically effectively buy repentance. Luther was the right man at the right place at the right time for many reasons. He personally had been born and raised in this system of Roman Catholic penance, had been taught to believe in purgatory. He, like most medieval people in his day, with few exceptions, regarded God as an angry holy, and righteous judge, which he is. Against sin, he is. Against your sin, he is. But that's really all Luther ever heard. The law in all its full fury. And Jesus, rather than being the loving Savior and Redeemer that we know he is, Jesus was portrayed As a new Moses, a new lawgiver. He came to earth not only to save the world, but to give the world new laws. Evangelical councils, the church referred to them as. You, as a common layperson going about your humdrum, no account daily life, you could not hope to achieve anything close to the righteousness required by God. But in your midst, among you were men and women who took on the high calling of living, and they still call it this to this day, a religious life. You would be a religious person, a member of a religious order. Luther joined in Erfurt, Germany, In kind of a dramatic change of mind, which infuriated his father, who had paid for him to be a lawyer to help with the family business, copper mining, Luther decided to become a monk. And he didn't decide just to join any monastery. He decided to join the best of the best of the best, the Augustinian order in Wittenberg, where he spent years and years and years tormenting himself, torturing himself over the thought that his sin was never fully confessed, that he had never done enough. He would confess if the requirement was once a week, Luther would do it five times a week. Luther went over and above. Modern scholars at times have tried to ascribe some kind of a mental illness to Luther because we moderns, Hardly have a sense of guilt and shame for sin, and we can hardly understand anybody who believes in such a notion Much less a man like Luther who took it so seriously He desperately clung to every little drop of hope he could receive in the confessional booth from his father superior John Stalpitz, who did point Luther to Christ Who told Luther say to God I am yours save me that was Staupitz's motto verse from the Psalms Now let me pause here and say this It would be much easier, probably for me, for scholars, for you, to think that the gospel had absolutely disappeared from the church and Luther came and found it for the first time in, oh, let's just pick a number, let's say a thousand years. But that would be misleading. The gospel was still present in the church because the Bible says the word of the Lord endures for ever. And it always has. It was present. It was heard. If you could understand Latin, you really had a leg up because the whole liturgy was in Latin. But there was popular preaching. There were movements in the church that emphasized devotion to Jesus Christ and so on and so forth. But it had become so obscured, so cluttered, so darkened with layers of laws and regulations and requirements And demands that all of life now is viewed as an effort to earn and merit God's favor. Like I said, you lay people couldn't hope to do it. But you could sponsor and support the saying of masses for your friends, for your loved ones. If you were rich enough like the rich rulers, you would endow masses perpetually. You would build churches. You would... Uh, fund entire monasteries of monks who would spend all day long doing nothing but silently, quasi-silently, saying masses for you. Well, back to Albrecht. He wanted the second office. He worked out a deal with the Pope. The Pope said, you pay me this much, I'll grant you the exception. Albrecht says, but dear Pope, I don't have enough money. Pope says, no problem. I'll turn you over to the imperial bankers, the Fugers, and they will loan you all the money you need. And you can sell indulgences through Germany. It's brilliant. Half of all the proceeds from the indulgence sales had to be returned to the Vatican. And so things were going great. They had their best salesman out there, John Tetzel. Luther even... I wasn't going to say it in church today because it's so offensive, but hey, it's right here in our church bulletin, so I can say it. Tetzel even went so far as to claim that anything can be forgiven. Now, which one is it here? Oh, I was looking at it before. Well, I can't find it right now, but it's in here. One of these says, you will be relieved of the guilt of sin, even the sin of violating the mother of God. That's how far Tetzel went. Now, he denied it later in life. Yeah, I didn't say that, but he did say it. He went crazy. And the more he talked, the more he made indulgences sound great. And they were going great, but Luther had had it. Luther had spent years now, this is another myth we need to dispel, that Luther's Reformation breakthrough was some kind of a da da and the heavens opened and the angels descended and there was this beautiful music and it was like a flash he discovered the gospel. Untrue, dear friends. This had come through hard study of scripture and through personal trial with sin on his part. For years he had been lecturing on the Bible, lectured on the Psalms, lectured on the book of Hebrews. Then he started lecturing on Galatians and then he came to Romans and it was in particular as he looked back on his life later as he was an older man, that when he was studying Paul's words in Romans, particularly chapter 3, which we hear during our church services on Reformation Sunday, we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from any works of the law. Luther realized by faith, by faith, not by works. He even offended people when he translated the New Testament by translating by faith alone. For you see, to this day, the Roman church has not any problem with the notion of grace, but with the notion of faith alone. Still to this day is taught you must receive grace, which makes it possible for you to believe, and then through that grace, you work up merit through your works, and you are saved by a process of faith plus works. How can you ever know that you've done enough? Torturous. Many Protestant churches teach this, in effect, by telling you you can never know you're saved unless you're sure you've made a right decision for Jesus. Well, you may have been feeling really great that day you came to the altar. But what about when you're feeling low? For Luther, everything was Christ and Christ alone. Faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone. And so we walked to the castle church, passing by all the sights and sounds in Wittenberg, and there were a lot that day. If you give me a moment, I'd like to tell you a little bit about what was going on in Wittenberg that day. And uh, the radio person is going to have to wave at me or something to get my attention because I forgot to set my timer, and I'm already off script, so I might go long. Um, I knew this would happen. Frederick the Wise. Very... Pious, ruler, very shrewd, one of the most powerful men in Europe. He was next up to be emperor, but he turned it down. He was influential, he knew everybody, he was related to everybody. But one thing Frederick loved was his relic collection. You heard about this? October 31st was the day before All Saints Day, or as it was known, All Hallowed's Eve. Today is simply called Halloween The next day was this huge festival in Wittenberg. Anybody who was anyone would be there, be it prince or pauper, peasant or business owner. They would all be in in Wittenberg to go to the castle church because one day a year, in particular, Frederick would bring out all the relics he owned. And you ask me, how many relics was that? Close to 5,000. What's a relic? The best way I can help us understand this, and again, kind of put ourselves back in the shoes of the folks back then, because otherwise it it just seems strange to our contemporary ears and eyes to consider this. Surely you have a loved one who has gone on to be with the Lord, and you have something from that loved one that you cherish. Maybe it's a watch. In the case of my dear father, who uh, died a number of years ago, I have a coffee mug that he used all the time he was a school principal. And uh, I love it, love drinking coffee out of it, just like thinking of him. I've got a picture of him. I like to smell a certain brand of pipe tobacco, it reminds me of him. Relics were bits and pieces of people the lay people and the whole church loved. The saints, the apostles, Jesus, Mary. And they believed, sincerely believed that these bits and pieces and fragments from their bodies or from their clothing or from for instance, the true cross or a piece of the nail that was used to crucify Christ. They, realized, they believed these were real things, and they put them in these beautiful containers called reliquaries. Frederick loved these. And if you would go to the castle church, I should say by 1520, his collection had grown to around 20,000 sacred objects. If you would go into this castle church on that day, and you would have to go through the castle church door you would have a chance to view all these relics and in the viewing you would receive an indulgence. Those who viewed these relics on the designated day and made the stipulated contribution might receive from the Pope himself indulgences for the reduction of purgatory, either for themselves or others now listen to this, to the extent of one million nine hundred and two thousand two hundred and two years and two hundred and seventy days don't ask me how that was calculated but the church did it these were the treasures made available on the day of all saints how could the church think they could dispense such a treasury of merits because it taught there existed a treasury of merits earned by jesus christ by his perfect life suffering and death and by all the saints the super holy people much better than you and me They didn't go to purgatory. They were so holy and righteous in this life that they earned additional merit, which all went into this big pot, treasury of merits, and the church had the authority. This wasn't just concocted out of thin air, because Jesus had said, after all, to the apostles, whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Whosoever sins you remit, they're remitted. Well... Unfortunately, from that comment, which is a wonderful promise about the gift of absolution, there developed this theory that the church had the authority now to dispense forgiveness, this treasury of merits, and that's what your indulgence was being drawn from. It all kind of makes sense. You know, this stuff just didn't happen willy-nilly, and these weren't stupid people. This was a well-developed system. Luther shook it to its core with his 95 theses on indulgences, which is what he nailed to the church door. Why the church door? Because the castle church complex was the place with the largest lecture hall for the university. Some scholars today say, well, if they weren't really posted, they were just mailed. And in the end, it doesn't matter because as one person quipped, whether they were nailed or mailed, they surely were posted that day. Because Luther not only nailed it to the door, he sent a copy with a personal letter from the humble Dr. Luther to his Archbishop, Albrecht. You can imagine what Albrecht thought when he got that letter from Luther and started to read the indulgences. Oh my goodness, my fundraising scheme is going to be destroyed if this guy gets away with this. Now the interesting thing is they set the theses aside for a while. No, uh, Albrecht sent him to Rome very quickly, but it took a few years for the papacy to catch up and realize we have a problem because they were so busy trying to wheel and deal in national politics across Germany with the election of a Roman Empire, uh, emperor and there were only a handful of men, one of whom was Frederick, who would elect the emperor. The, uh, another elector was Albrecht the Elector of Mainz. He helped elect the Emperor. So it was all this church politics. Don't rock the boat. We're trying to get the right guy in office. Plus, the Pope was fighting off, and the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, fighting off France in the West, and to the East, bearing down hard on the very gates of Vienna, were the Turks, Muslims, Islam. They made ISIS look like a bunch of amateurs. This was a huge threat. You know how... Afraid and terrorized we are by ISIS? Imagine this enormous Turkish empire about ready to sweep over all of Europe. So things were dire. It gave Luther breathing room and Frederick maneuvered to protect Luther. So he posted these theses on the door and I've got a quote here in which Luther refers to his debate placard. It was very common in scholarly circles for a scholar to present a set of debating points to explore a certain topic. In this case, the topic of indulgences. Luther had done this before. Just a number of months prior, he had posted a document that he thought would get him in trouble. It was a big statement rejecting and questioning and opening up for debate the whole system of Roman Catholic theology using medieval scholastic theology. He thought that would get him in trouble. Hardly anybody noticed church didn't care, the bureaucrats didn't care. But this document, challenging their huge successful fundraising screen, literally all hell broke loose, eventually, as more and more church leadership and rulers started to read this and realize he's not only challenging indulgences, he's very carefully challenging even the Pope's own authority. And if there's one thing you never do, to this day even, in the Roman Catholic Church, You can say just about anything you want, propose just about anything you want. One thing you don't do, you don't challenge the Pope's authority. Do that, and you are in a world of hurt. Luther eventually got himself in a world of hurt. He not only got the attention of the the Pope, he got the attention of his political ruler, Charles V., Charles V is a fascinating person, basically tracked with Luther from his earliest days all the way to his death. He outlived Luther, but at all major events in Luther's life, Charles V was there. So you know the story. By 1521, things had really taken off. He had the church's full attention. He had gotten himself banned, excommunicated, and was drawn up on charges by the emperor and brought to the imperial diet of Worms which is better than saying what causes confirmation children that speak English for many years to giggle, the Diet of Worms. I never recommend the Diet of Worms. Maybe they do that in California, but not here. (laughs) He was brought up before this regular meeting of the imperial states. And why? Because by this time, all of Germany was in an uproar. Let me read to you. What Aleander, the Pope's personal representative, who was charged with bringing the Pope's announcement of Luther's excommunication to Germany, said when he tried to do this, and he tried to post it on several cathedral doors. That was, the, the, if you read it, it says, upon the posting of this document on so and such and such cathedrals, it will take effect within 90 days. Well, this was his report of how things were going in Germany by this time. All of Germany is in an uproar. 90% of the people are shouting, Luther! And the other 10%, if they don't care or know anything about Luther, are at least saying, Death to the Pope! That was the assessment. Everywhere he went, he was harassed and harangued. Luther had become a superstar. Remember what I said about the right time, right place, right man? The other thing Luther had going for him was he was the first social media wizard. Luther latched on to the technology that had within the past hundred years or so been perfected by Johann Gutenberg. And Gutenberg did, did not invent the printing press. We know that movable type printing presses on paper were used in China a thousand years before, Korea, never made its way to Europe. But what Gutenberg did finally when Europe got a hold of this technology is he made it economical to use the printing press. He figured out, sort of, kind of, well not really, he kind of died poor, he set in motion a way for the printing press to make money. And how do you make money on a printing press? You print books. Okay, great. You print lots of books. Great. Do you want them sitting in an inventory in a warehouse somewhere? Take it from me as a publisher at a publishing house, the answer is no. You'd rather have cash than inventory. And the best way to make money was to sell what people wanted to read. Guess who became the superstar author throughout Germany during his whole life? Martin Luther. In the city of Wittenberg, he kept six to seven printing presses going nearly full-time, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year during his entire life. People couldn't buy his books fast enough. Particularly, Luther had the savvy to write short documents, not always giant tomes, but short pamphlets, quickly printed, quickly distributed, easily read, because Luther was a brilliant writer. He wrote when he was reaching the people in the language of German, in the people's language. People loved it. It was so clear. I'm holding up a copy of what I hope you all are picking up today. There's a copy for all of you, everybody attending services. Have you heard of it before? A simple explanation of Christianity? Luther's most famous document? Oh, you probably know it as the Small Catechism. It's a handbook of the faith. This thing went like hotcakes. So the theses were promulgated. Everything Luther wrote flashed out across Europe. Was it Luther's intention to start a new church? No. Listen to what he said I never wanted to fight either with the strongest or the weakest my single intention was to stay hidden in the corner. But now that I have been as it were grasped by the ear and dragged into the public eye by a single debate placard, see he refers to it as a debate placard, I believe that this has happened according to God's will. I will fear neither the strong nor the loud, neither will I appear weak or any, or any other such condition. Then I would truly be a miserable Luther If I would not fight entirely in the faith of a God who works alone in me. Now that was confident, Luther. But he had his moments of doubt. Deep doubt. Deep despair. I think today we might diagnose it as periods of depression. When he felt the enormity of what was going on, on his shoulders. We catch a glimpse of his inner struggle in these words. My heart is so affected that I hope I have begun it in God's name but I am not so bold as to pass judgment on it and loudly proclaim that it is surely and must be so. I do not want to suffer God's judgment. Instead, I crawl to his grace and hope that he has let it be started in his name. And since I am a sinful man of flesh and blood, if something unclean has mingled with it, I hope he may graciously forgive me and not deal severely with me in his judgment. Let anyone who wants to slander, curse, and judge my person and life it's already forgiven him. But let no one expect grace or patience from me when he wants to make liars out of the Holy Spirit or my Lord Christ whom I preach. I am not concerned about myself. I shall defend Christ's word with a joyful heart and renewed courage without regard to anyone. To this end, God has given me a joyful, fearless spirit, which I trust they shall not harm in all eternity. Let me read to you something that addresses this point. Did Luther ever want the church to be called Lutheran? Most people here. oh no, he never wanted that. In fact, he said, never, never let it be so. He did say that at one time, early on. He finally agreed. However, if you believe and confess the word of God as Luther has preached it, if you believe that preaching's true, then, okay, fine. Accept the title Lutheran. The Roman Catholics used it for the first time, by the way, in the papal documents condemning Luther, they refer specifically to the Lutherans. At the Diet of Augsburg, which happened in 1530, the Lutherans were finally able to present their confession to the emperor. In many ways, if we want to celebrate a birthday of the Lutheran church, it would be June 1530. That was the day the lay people presented this faith and this confession. The lay people, the rulers, the princes, the heads of cities, the powerful men in Germany who supported Luther. And one of these great lay leaders, George Margrave of Brandenburg, said it best when he was accused of being a Lutheran. I love this quote. George said, I have not been baptized in Luther's name. You call me a Lutheran, but he is. Luther is not my God and Savior. I do not believe in Luther, nor will I be saved by Luther. In that sense, therefore, I am not a Lutheran. But if I am asked with my heart and mouth, I confess the doctrine that God has given once more through his salutary instrument, Martin Luther, then I have no second thoughts or shame over calling myself a Lutheran. And in this sense I am and will remain a Lutheran my whole life. Now how about you? Can you, will you say that with George Margrave or Brandenburg? Some people are bothered by the fact today that there are so many divisions in Christendom, and yes there are. It's not quite as complex as everybody makes it out to be. Very simply, There are only a handful of questions you need to ask to sort through some of this. Do you believe the Western Church or the Eastern Church has it right? If so, you're a part of the Western Church. Do you believe at the time of the Reformation the Lutheran Church got it right? Or was Rome correct? If Rome's correct, then be a Roman. Be a Romanist. Be a a Roman Catholic. Do you believe at the time of the Reformation the Lutherans had it right? Or did John Calvin and his followers, the Reformed, get it right? And from the Reformed is where we get the majority of all the Protestant church bodies we have in America today and elsewhere. So there's really only three simple questions for sorting through what might be otherwise. Oh, there's 30,000 denominations. Who can ever know the truth? Nonsense. You can know the truth. Some would say that when talking to others about our religious beliefs, it's wiser to avoid mentioning Martin Luther or the Lutheran Confessions but rather to restrict yourself to statements like this, I'm a Christian, I believe what the Bible teaches. Nothing wrong with that, I hope you can all say that. But, however much such an expression is good and true, and it is, it's not really saying enough, now is it? Since Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Baptists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Pentecostals, Methodists, non denominationals non-denominational evangelicals, and now even anti-Trinitarian movements and cults like the Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses all call themselves Christian. They all say we believe what the Bible teaches. We would definitely not want people to confuse what we believe with what these groups teach and profess. Therefore, we call ourselves Lutherans. Likewise, we use creedal statements such as those found in the Lutheran Confessions. And we don't simply say, the Bible alone is our creed. No creed but the Bible. That sounds great, doesn't it? But it's not enough. So we distinguish ourselves from the many groups who say they believe and follow the Bible, though they really do not. Other titles that could be applied to us in certain respects, if properly understood, are Protestant, yes, Evangelical, our church was the first one to be called Evangelical, even Reformed, we're Reformed, in the sense of not embracing the errors of Roman Catholicism, but nothing so clearly distinguishes us as it must and disassociates us from the errors of Rome, Eastern Orthodoxy, and the Reformed than adhering to a properly defined and understood confession of faith as it's found in this book. This is a copy, this is an edition of the Book of Concord. It contains the Lutheran confessions. Now, as you, many of you might talking about this alone but be that as it may this dear friends is your safeguard this is what your pastors pledge themselves to believe teach and confess because they believe it's what the bible teaches it's what every teacher who serves this congregation pledges themselves to is that important for you it better be Do you want your children baptized in some kind of heretical doctrine about the Trinity as is going on in many Protestant churches today who have ditched Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because it's sexist, they claim? No. Do you want Grandma and Grandpa being visited in the hospital by a clergy person of unknown sexual orientation who's going to tell them, Oh, you've lived a good life. You should not have any worries. When they are looking down death's road, fearful of where they're going to end up, and they need to hear about Jesus, the crucified one, for them, as do you. This is what this book confesses. Now, let me get a little little blunt with you. How can you know your pastors, how can you know our church is abiding by what's in this book if you've never looked at it or read it? Yes, you've been taught the small catechism, thank God. Is that enough for the Lutheran layman? The answer is no. This book belongs in every home. Our first church body president, Dr. Walther, said that. One of the goals of the formation of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod was to make it possible for all laypeople to have copies of the Lutheran Confessions at an affordable price. I leave you with that thought and say no more. The word of the Lord endures forever. Let me spend the last part of my presentation here talking about how am I doing on time, Miles? What? Five minutes? Okay, that's enough. I talked about 15 minutes that changed the world when Luther walked down to his church. I'm going to give you five minutes. That'll change your life. The word of the Lord endures forever. I want you to look up at this beautiful brass cross we have, which, by the way, I personally always have to get a great deal of satisfaction because that's really the ancient Irish cross. So being an Irish person in a German church, I like that. Thank you. It's very kind of you to do that. Right in the center where the arms cross of the cross you see this circle and it says what those letters actually are V-D-M-A, the A is kind of stylized V-D-M-A comes from the Latin phrase verbum domini monet, and aeternum the word verbum of the Lord domini Monet remains or endures aeternum forever, you can hear the word eternal in the Latin word aeternum that was the motto that was sewn on to the sleeves and uniforms issued to every person working in these German princes' castles. They formed a protective defensive league called the League of Smolkhold, and they put that phrase and they put that logo or motto onto their armor, onto their swords, onto their cannons. There's even a picture on the Missouri Center website, Reformation site, showing a horse's helmet with verbum domini monit and Iterum. Now you say, well, that was kind of silly. Why'd they do that? Dear friends in Christ, The Lutheran Reformation is all about the enduring eternal word of God and your place under that word. Martin Luther found great freedom when he finally was led by the Holy Spirit to understand that he could not, by his own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ as Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit had called him by the gospel, enlighten him with his gifts and sanctifies and keeps him in the true faith as he does you as well the word of the Lord endures forever what's happening to the Lutheran Church today you know we've got our challenges and our struggles and our problems I always like to remind people when you read things in the media about what a supposedly Lutheran Church has done when it comes to issues of human sexuality or abortion yes we're all upset we're shocked we're stunned we're amazed should we be? No. These are symptoms of what happens in a church body when it gets away from God's inerrant, inspired word. From that word alone, which endures forever. We learn the law. We hear about our sin. Most importantly, we receive the gospel that our pastors here preach so beautifully to us. And for those of you who haven't been to divine service yet, we're looking forward To the next service, receiving the Lord's Supper. What a gift of grace. The word of the Lord endures forever. It's a story of great hope, of great confidence, of great joy. But be warned, Luther said, God's word and grace is like a passing shower of rain. It comes and it goes. It was with the Jews, but when it's gone, it's gone. Paul brought it to the Greek. But when it's gone, it's gone. We have it in Germany for a while, but don't think we'll have it forever because our ingratitude and contempt will not make it stay. So I say to you today, run out and get wet with that enduring word while it is still raining. Don't delay. Man up. Learn your confessions as a Lutheran and be courageous and be confident, not boastful, not proud in yourself, But joyful that you, this day, have an opportunity to celebrate the great gift of the Reformation, to share that joy with others. We did this little book so you could give it out. You're not going to intimidate anybody by giving them a little thing that says simple explanation. People read this who've never heard about it. They love it. You read it. You love it. Learn it. Memorize it. Put it in your heart. The word of the Lord endures forever. Thank you. Learn it. Memorize it.
0: Thank you very much, Reverend Paul McCain. We're going to close with a one-verse hymn, Hymn 582, God's Word is Our Great Heritage, Hymn 582. And why don't we stand for, as we sing, Hymn 582. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.